How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Meet the Entrepreneur number 30. This is your host, Artin Zahiri. Today, I'm speaking with the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen Plappert. Stephen is a two-time alum of the prestigious Techstar Startup Accelerator, and currently, he is the co-founder and CEO of Forecaster. Forecaster is an online software that, hey, if you're a founder um, and you hate building financial models, stop using Excel templates, stop using Google Sheets templates, go over to forecaster.co and you're going to find the perfect platform that connects you with all the resources you need to understand your numbers, predict your runway and get funded. Steven has a ton of amazing lessons learned as a serial entrepreneur, an amazing story. We're going to talk about all of it. Get ready, buckle up. This is going to be a fun ride. Let's get into it. Um, I want to start it off, Stephen. Uh, it's kind of a little bit with your uh, background, kind of your origin story. I believe you are uh, a Kentucky native and you went to um, University of Kentucky. And uh, when you were at the school, you got your, your bachelor's in math, uh, mathematical economics and you started a startup while you were a student. Can you like just take it from the top? Um, why did you decide to go to Kentucky and specifically that major? Yeah, for sure, man. So, yeah, just like you said, I am a Kentucky Kentucky boy through and through, Kentucky native. So I lived, lived here most of my life and, uh, and and it's my home. So, you know, definitely proud proud to be here from from Kentucky. And so growing up here, you know, um, I did I did kind of want to venture out, you know, when I went to college and, and I was originally going to go to St. Louis University. But I was a math, I was a, you know, I was a math guy. I really wanted to learn math and, and I was intending to be a math major at the time. Mm. And, and I never really thought I would go to Kentucky. Uh, but as I, as I got closer to going to college, you know, uh, I, I became more aware of the financial aspect of things. And I was like, man, why would I make my parents pay so much more money? Cause I am, I am from a fairly privileged household, but they were going to pay for my college. I was like, why would I make them pay four times as much, you know, to go out of, out of state when I could go in state? And I looked at Kentucky and, they had this brochure to take to do mathematical economics and numbers have always just made a lot of sense to me, you know, so, so that's, al- that's always been how my brain works. And so, you know, I, I really, um, I thought that was like a perfect fit for me to, to study math, to study economics. I wanted to go into big finance. I wanted to be a portfolio manager at the time. Um, so that's what led me to, led me to go to school. And then, as, as, you know, as we can see in my career, you know, I never ended up Doing any of that work, I ended up, like you said, you know, starting a tech company right out of college, and and I never looked back. You know, but then yep. been doing tech and startups ever since. But um, well, yeah, what's that, cool? Kinda... What's cool is now, you know, fast forward to today, of course, with Forecaster, and we'll get into it. You're doing a lot of that financial stuff um, that you kind of saw yourself going down that path, but just in a, in a completely different way. I'm curious, you know, you said you've always been like a math guy. Your 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 brain has always worked really well with numbers and you can pick up on it. You want it to be, a, uh, you know, kind of a mathematician and then go into finance. Where did that uh, interest come from? Were you like anyone in your family really into math or finance or where did the, um, you know, the the excitement and interest in math and numbers come from? Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, and so, you know, in my immediate family and stuff like that, no, like there's nobody that's particularly numbers inclined, you know, like I would say I'm, I'm definitely a, uh, an outlier in that sense. I would say oh, really that the interest for me, I think it, it came from kind of birth, if that makes sense. I think it was very natural for me. I think growing up, it's just how my brain functioned, you know? And so I think like, I just was naturally drawn to problems with objective solutions. So math problems versus maybe a problem like a, you know, English problem or something like that that's more subjective. I was naturally drawn to that objectivity. I was naturally drawn to just 
to numbers versus words. You know, I always tell, tell people that, like, I've been trying to learn a language for decades and it's so hard, but numbers just make so much sense to me. So I think a part of it's like, I think as humans, at least this is true for me, we like to do more of and we're in, we tend to be interested in the stuff that we're good at, you know what I mean? A lot of times, a lot of times. And so, you know, I think for me, that's where I excelled. That's what made sense to me. That's what, you know, that's how my brain works. And so I just naturally, you know, really dove into that. Um, and then, you know, and then for also for me, just to mention it, you know, business was always something I was very interested in. And I'm a third generation entrepreneur. My grandfather, you know, was an entrepreneur running an insurance company for many years. My father is still an entrepreneur running a payments company. So, you know, I, I do think that that came from the blood, you know, the entrepreneurial interest. Um, and then the number side was just kind of a, yeah, natural, natural inclination. Got it. Yeah, that's so cool. Definitely. You got the entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial DNA in you. So you, you go to Kentucky, um, from 2009 to 2013, uh, obviously Kentucky is great sports, basketball, especially home of the Wildcats. And while you were at Kentucky, you started a startup called fantasy hub. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, um, this was the early days of, of something called daily fantasy sports when people would play, uh, you know, fantasy football historically on things like ESPN and spend a whole season, but this is the way to do it and make real money. And, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel are, are very, very successful examples of this today. When we were graduating from college in 2013, that was a really early space. And, uh, and me and, and a couple of buddies, you know, we had the idea to say, hey, like we kind of throw our hat in the ring and, and get a company going we saw a lot of opportunity and you know back to my interest in numbers it was actually an idea that my friend Andrew had and came to me and you know it was that's a numbers game you know gambling betting you know winning that kind of stuff is like it's very numbers heavy and and I was really drawn to that you know kind of filling that void Andrew's more of a product strategy guy so so that it came, it came about kind of organically like that and to be honest with you you know Andrew and I both said look like we're graduating from college you know, this seems like a really interesting concept and idea. We don't know the first thing about starting a company, really, but like, let's give it a shot, you know, and if it fails in a few months, we'll go get big boy jobs and, and we'll move on with our careers. And, you know, I think also crediting our, you know, our, our parents, uh, Andrew's father and my father uh, both gave us $25,000, $50,000 in angel capital to start the business. And they said, guys, look, like we would have put this money towards an MBA, like treat this as an MBA and go get yourself an MBA, right? Like start a business like what a better way to to learn you know trial by fire and and that 50k ended up giving us enough of a boost to get the company up 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 up, up and like kind of off the ground we parlayed that in the future rounds of capital and it ended up being a three-year journey you know that that taught me so much about how to build build a company it took me down to austin texas and going through tech stars so you know so much so much to say about that experience but um yeah that's kind of how how it got started and, and, and came to be that's really cool. And it was, um, was it like a website or a mobile app? How did you guys go about building the platform itself? And, and then like, once you build it, how'd you go and, uh, you know, spread the word to get users? Yeah, great question. So it was a, it was a, it was a web application as well as a mobile app. And you would log into fantasyhub.com in order to, uh, in order to, to bet and wager real money against other real people and, and win in fantasy sports. So you would like set a, you know, team of a fantasy basketball team, fantasy football team, fantasy soccer team, and play against other other people in the way that, you know, perhaps some of, some of the audience you may be familiar with, with solutions like DraftKings and FanDuel. It was exactly like that. It was kind of a, uh, you know, I guess you'd call it a copycat, you know, solution to that, right? Kind of trying to ride their coattails. Um, 
and and I will say on the topic of growth and go to market right and, and get, building that early critical mass for a consumer platform, super challenging and uh, you know I would say first time founders. So we did a lot of uh, unscalable things. Let's just say a lot of cold calling of organizations to try to partner with. You know we we allowed people to raise money for charity through our platform, which was something unique. And so cold called a lot of charities. Cold called a lot of uh, a lot of. Um, Charities that athletes have, Adrian Peterson's charity, Kurt Warner's charity, Bo Jackson's charity, and they actually ended up playing on Fantasy Hub, giving away signed memorabilia, meet and greets, free tickets to games in exchange for donation-based, you know, fantasy games. And that actually was how we cracked the nut. That's how we broke into the space. Was what started as a potential user acquisition kind of hack ultimately end up became a big piece of, of our brand. We were fantasy sports for charity. You could wager and win real money, but you could also donate that money to charity. And a lot of professional athletes promoted us on social media to their large followings. Fans would come to play against Adrian Peterson and get you know free tickets on the 50-yard line, but then they would stay to play our other games because that was just the way they broke the seal. So it was, it was a space of like a really high customer acquisition cost, and that's how we ended up kind of making a name for ourselves and that's why we made it as, as, as far along as we as we did that's amazing brilliant strategy and a very mission driven way to differentiate yourself because i was thinking um you know i'm sure competition always fierce especially you know with uh draft kings fan duel coming up really cool way to be unique and differentiate yourself uh working with the player charities so that's super cool and then of course you mentioned um through fantasy hub you guys got accepted into Techstars, um, one of the most, um, you know, competitive, highly selective startup accelerators, uh, only accepts 1% of applicants. So kudos to you guys. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about Techstars and, and going to Austin and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And um, man, I, like it's it's cliche to say, but it's true. It's like that experience was totally life-changing for me. Tech, tech- Techstars is a phenomenal organization. It really is. And it's grown so much over the years. And 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 I really think that in a lot of ways, it's stayed true to, to its ethos. It's just like, it's such a high quality network of, you know, serial entrepreneurs of experienced folks that, that know what they're doing. And, you know, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. So this is not a, this is not a hub of entrepreneurship necessarily. There's great founders here. There's great companies here. But, you know, it, we're, we're not the kind of density that San Francisco or Austin or, or, or New York has. So, you know, for me, going down, getting selected into Techstars, going down to Austin, being surrounded with founders who have done it time and time again and know, you know they're experts in their field. It was huge for me as a young entrepreneur to just soak it up like a sponge, to learn, to, you know, turn, um, turn unknown unknowns into known unknowns, if that makes sense, right? You know, uh, you know become more consciously incompetent rather than <laughs> the opposite, right? And and learn what are, where are your gaps and what do you need to learn and then go commit yourself to that, you know it was a, it was a, it was very much like a it kicked off a, a very much I think like a period of of learning and growing and kind of sharpening my skills as an entrepreneur and a lot of that came not really from TechStars programming but from the network you know just from bumping you know bumping elbows with a lot of you know experienced entrepreneurs that have you know there are a few rungs up on the ladder from you so. It was it was a really awesome experience. I'm I still have great friends from that Austin experience. I still go down to Austin once a year to to see my people because it's, it's just, it really is such a strong tribe, you know. And uh, and we were lucky to get selected. And and of course, my latest company, Forecaster, is also a TechStars company. And so that I mean that says all you probably need to hear about how much I appreciate TechStars because 
I'd already been through Dexter's and <laughs> when I started the next one, I was the first thought on my mind was like, man, I think this would make a great Techstars company and I'd love to go back through the program just because it's so valuable. So um, yeah, big, big, big experience for me. 100%. And was there a reason you chose the Austin cohort? Um, any kind of strategic reason for that? No, not not per, not not necessarily. I mean, the the answer really is that that they were the ones that accepted us. Uh -huh. We we applied in New York, Boston, and Austin. Um, New York and Boston both declined us before the the phone interview piece. They declined us out based on the online application. Austin gave us a shot, uh, you know, and and we chased it all down and we got in. So mm -hmm. so that that's why. Honestly, I'm not sure why Austin was the third program that we did apply for um because this was in the early days i mean this was 2015 down in austin so austin was on the up and come yep, but it was yep. not a huge burgeoning mm -hmm. you know place like it is today so um it was a great time to be in austin honestly yeah that's a that's a really good uh point for like a lot of our listeners a lot of founders entrepreneurs um that are trying to get into tech stars apply um like only for the location that that they're in their city um but you really it's, it's really wise to kind of broaden that and because all like you said all the cohorts are great uh, it doesn't yeah. matter which city. So any way you can get in, uh, just go after it and, um, you know, cast a wider net because all of their programs are amazing. So really, really, really cool point there. Um, so that was, so you did for Fantasy Hub, you did the accelerator in 2015. So that was about two years after you graduated. Really, really cool how, um, you know, your family kind of viewed it as an MBA. Uh, you honestly likely very, very likely learned a lot more than you would have in a traditional MBA program. Um, so that makes a ton of sense. So what happened then, um, after you went through the tech stars program, uh, when did you decide to kind of part ways from that venture and what was, what was really next for you after that? Where was your head at in that moment? Yeah, great question. So, you know, so we had, we went into tech stars with some solid traction, still pretty early stage company. I would say kind of in between pre-seed and seed stage in, in today's terms. And coming out of Techstars, we raised a $1.1 million seed, you know, um, and we, and, but it was the same summer that DraftKings and FanDuel each raised a $500 million Series E. So they collectively got a billion dollars in capital. We got $1 million. Um, we all put it into marketing, all three of us. Uh, theirs went a lot farther than ours. But, uh, but what, what really happened that year is a very interesting year uh, where a lot of attorney generals started to look at the space and say, hey, this looks a lot like gambling. You know, we'd like to regulate this space, understandably so, at some le at some le level. Um, but it but it did cause the heck of a stink. You know, um, it it like investors really kind of backed off from the space, not not sure where it would land from on on the side of regulations, and said that the landscape kind of dried up. DraftKings and Fandle had you know five hundred million dollars, so they kind of weathered that storm quite well. We, along with about fifteen other sites, we were fifth in the space of twenty sites. Uh, all collapsed and died and and rolled up to DraftKings and FanDuel, you know, one way or another, uh, usually through smaller sites that eventually then rolled up into them. Uh, DraftKings, in fact, bought our user base. So, you know, um, that's what happened to a lot of companies in that space, ours included. So, so this is like early 2016, you know, we had to make the really hard decision to wind the company down. You know, we were, we were growing well, but not in a position to raise future capital. We tried, but we could only get 250,000. It wasn't going to be enough. And, that was one of the mature moves that we made to say, look, instead of taking this 250, which the guys were willing to write the checks, we don't think it's going to be enough. We think that's going to be throwing, you know, good money after bad and we're going to call it quits. And that's a hard, hard decision when you're sitting on 250 that could give you another six months to give it a shot. 
but we just we just we we called a vote of no confidence and I think that took a lot of maturity for us to do that at that time. I think it was absolutely the right call in hindsight, you know, and, and it's not easy to shut a company down. Yes, where my head was at. I mean, I was in a pretty dark place, to be quite honest. It's my first company. I put everything I had into that company. So I felt like, you know, Fantasy Hub was me and I was Fantasy Hub. And when Fantasy Hub failed, you know, we had such a great base of investors that, that really, you know, they were experienced. They knew They knew the risks. And so they were good about it except for one, one investor made my life a living hell and taught me that, you know, you really need to have the right investors. This guy even went so far as to do the, the company on the basis that we knew what the attorney general was going to do months in advance. Like we had a bug in his office, Ridiculous. you know, and didn't disclose it, which of course we disclosed it, any kind of risks, you know, out the wazoo. So this guy was just trying to grandstand and do whatever he could to claw himself out. So, but it, but it, but it taught me a lot. It taught me you got to be careful about the folks that you put on your cap table. And too often, founders get those big eyes, you know, and someone's willing to write a check. But you, but you have to make sure that you're getting the right people on the cap table. So, so it was a, it was a tough time for me. I would say it was kind of a dark time for me. I, I went through a period of depression, to be quite honest with you, you know, and said, look, like, man, that was really hard. And, but, but after about a month or two, once that company had wound down. And I had some time to reflect and I had some time to really think back on that experience. You know, it, it's, it was such a launch pad for me and my career as an entrepreneur. And I knew in that moment that I would be a, a career entrepreneur. I, I knew that it was the life for me. It's like, it's so gritty. It's so hard. It's so creative. It's so rewarding. You know, I knew that this was it for me, but, but, but at the time I didn't want to start another company right away. I mean, you know, it's such a stressful, hard experience. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> it's no joke. So, I was like, man, I want to stay in startups, but I don't want to take on the stress of being a founder again right now. I need some time. So what could I do? And I went back to my numerical roots, right? I said, look, well, I loved managing the financial model and the financial part of, work, of, of Fantasy Hub. Maybe I could do that for other companies. I could participate in the startup world, but I wouldn't take on the stress of being a founder. And that led me over a four-year period I, from 2016 to 2020 before you know, pausing that and starting Forecaster. I was a, a fractional head of finance for early stage companies. I built a lot of financial models for companies, mostly through Techstars and parlayed that into retainer engagements, managing their finance. And so that's how I got this kind of deep domain expertise in startup finance and financial modeling was just, you know, being numerically inclined, failing a company, not wanting to be a founder again right away. And so wanting to be founder adjacent, you know, and, and there we go. And a new career for me was born and, and a new company was born. That's awesome. So how did that come together? The fractional CFO? Um, I, I mean, you talked to you again, you mentioned tech stars, that was like a, a really good, um, you know, pipeline of, of startups and potential clients for you, I'm sure that you could tap into. So the network was huge. But how how, how did it all come together? Um, you know, did you uh, have to like formalize another entity and, and provide your services a, a certain way? How, how did you go about um, becoming that fractional CFO for that period of time? Yeah, great question. And uh, the more I talk, the more I, this feels like a Techstars commercial. And I promise it's not, uh, but it's like, but it, but it, but it's just such a, there's just so many, you know, kind of threads throughout my career. But when my company failed, you know, I went to the other nine companies in my Techstars program, whom I had helped build their financial models in program, because I loved that aspect. And I was like, hey, guys, Fantasy Hub's dead. Like, you know, you guys know me, you know, I'm a legit, like, you know, maybe I could do some work for you. And I got two or three engagements out of that, managing the models and kind of and running their finance. 
And then Techstars has this program called Techstars Connect. It's now Techstars Universe. It's just like a forum where all of the Techstars community can interact. And I became active in that forum and I became known as the guy who could build you a reasonably priced financial model and a great financial model. But you know how it is, just word got out and I just started to get clients through through that, a pretty steady stream because there's such a big network. And uh, for a while, I just did a, um, I just did it all 1099. You know, I was just 1099, a contractor. I just kind of managed it as a sole proprietor. I did that for a year. I actually ended up taking six months off and hiking the, the Appalachian Trail in 2017. So I, I cut off all those engagements after a year. I went and hiked from Georgia to Maine, you know, uh, in, in 2017 and just spent six months in the woods. And then when I came back in late 2017, I actually more or less got kind of like aqua hired into a company called Venture First. So there's a company here locally called Venture First and in, in Louisville. And they do CFO services and really all finance for for high growth startups. They brought me in, you know, uh, to basically kind of like do that with them. You know what I mean? I knew the CEO well. And so that was actually my first and only W2 job that I haven't provided for myself in my entire career was at Venture First. And and I was there for the next two and a half years. That's why I met Logan, my co-founder. He was at Venture First as the head of FBNA. So that's how Logan and I came together. And that's really how Forecaster was born. That's a perfect segue into Forecaster. So that's super cool. So you first W first and only W two job ever at Venture First. Uh, your co-founder of Forecaster, Logan, was the head of FPNA over there. How did you guys uh, ex ex uh, describe that? Uh, like what leading up to that moment, where you guys hatched the idea for Forecaster? You were coworkers at Venture First. How did the idea come about? And then, um, you know. What was the catalyst? I was like, all right, I'm ready to go into entrepreneurship again and, and take the plunge another time. Yeah, great question. So, 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 so interestingly enough, in the year I was doing all the financial modeling before I went on the Appalachian Trail, I had started to kind of sniff at this concept of like, hey, could you not do like the Carta of financial models? Could you not build an online integrated financial model, a new operating system for that that's not based in Excel? Carter did it for cap tables. Why couldn't you do it for financial models? I had to, I started to have this kind of idea because I'm building all these models. I'm seeing how, how, you know, how replicatable they are, how much a robot could do this at some level, right? And just how much better it would be in an online integrated world. And I was calling the company Crystal Ball, but I was committed to go doing the Appalachian Trail. So I'm like, look, I'm not going to go start that. I want to go do the Appalachian Trail. And after spending six months in the woods, and, and for me, I'm a big outdoorsman, so that was very recharging for me. When I came back, I was like, I'm ready. Like, you know, I'm like, if, if, if the right idea comes, if the right person comes, blah, 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 I'm ready. And I ended up joining Venture First because I was like, that's a great way to just, you know, make ends meet while I'm kind of letting things marinate. And I wasn't immediately thinking about Crystal Ball again. It was just an idea in my head. And, and about three months in to working at Venture First and me and Logan sat back to back. We were similar ages. We got along super well, yin and yang. And so we just became good friends. Logan came to me a few months in. He was like, hey, man, for the last year, I've been thinking, I've been building all these models and why couldn't we do it like Carta? And he's, you know, he's having the same idea. And I was like, man, you know what? I was like, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, you know, before I, before I went out on the AT. And so it was that that kind of sparked everything where had Logan not refreshed that idea in my mind, I don't know if I would have taken immediate action on it. But when he did, it was kind of like, huh, I had that thought and thought it was a pretty good idea. Now you're having that thought and sitting in a similar seat. If we're both having that thought, you know, we 
we almost owe it to ourselves to do some diligence on this. And th this was one of the things that you learn as a founder, right? It's like my first time fantasy hub, I had the idea and I just started the company. I, we got 50 grand from our parents and we just started throwing, throwing spaghetti on a wall and like, you know, it worked out, but we skinned our knees along the way. This time we said, Hey, we've got this idea. We've got jobs. We've got full-time employment. Like let's not add any burn to the company. Let's, moonlight let's de-risk let's clear certain hurdles so like for the next 18 months while working at venture first logan and i did a lot of customer discovery we contracted through equity with the firm here locally to build us like a alpha prototype you know we started courting investors we started doing things that would de-risk the company before we you know added our own personal burn to it right and i think that was for me i think that's something that you know is is really smart to do you know it's kind of like you know, get the company through some checkpoints before you go all in. It'll reduce the risk for yourself as a founder. It reduces the risk for investors a lot of times, you know, and it's just a less stressful way to, to get the company off the ground. So so we could talk more about that if, if you'd like, but that's kind of like, there was kind of this incubation period of Venture First and Venture First was actually very kind to us in, in that they actually supported that and they're a, they're, a, they're, a, they're a shareholder in the company, which is cool as well. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, it, it's such a, it's, it's just so funny how life works, how like that situation that you were in uh, was like perfect, like with, with Logan having the exact same thoughts that you did and then the environment with Venture First that was uh, allowed you guys to take that very pragmatic step-by-step -step approach. Um, like you said, obviously reduces a lot of risk uh, when you go about building a business that way, um, and more importantly, reduces a lot of stress and anxiety as well, because uh, you're clearing a lot of these hurdles before you're taking on um, so much uncertainty when you just uh, kind of do it um, like the 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 first the first way, just put in put in money and, and see what happens. So totally get that makes a ton of sense. And uh, yeah, it would would be awesome to hear um it just sound it sounds like you guys really were super resourceful like even building the platform itself you you, you worked with a local firm kind of partnered up with them um what are what are some of those things you did to get it off the ground um and then once once it was off the ground um you can talk about uh kind of the steps you took from there to to start scaling it and, and make it a, a more full-time thing instead of a moonlighting thing yeah, totally. So the three main things I felt like we needed to do to get it off the ground and, and largely kind of came from my prior experience as a founder and specifically a non-technical founder was like customer discovery, you know, tech uh, and investors. Like I felt like if we could really get a deep understanding of the customer and leverage a deep customer discovery process to basically get a bunch of, you know, founders on a wait list more or less, right? Because you do a bunch of customer discovery and all of a sudden you're naturally going to get folks that are interested so it's a great way to like seed your your sales funnel, right? So we did tons of customer discovery, about a couple hundred founders we talked to and seeded the sales funnel. Logan and I were non-tech. So we went to this firm, you know, that we knew and trusted here locally, Apex Development. We did an, an equity deal with them. We actually venture first, put up a little bit of cash. We put up a little bit of equity through a convertible note and, and worked with them to build an alpha prototype. But we knew that wasn't going to be sustainable. Like that was just to get us started. Logan and I were on the hunt to find excellent technical talent, and we did in the in the in the form of Jonathan Frazier and Stephen Ams. Stephen and I had worked together at Fantasy Hub. Jonathan is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and he like he and I connected to a startup weekend event here locally, and an event called Founder Beers that I run, and we just really hit it off. And so 
you know, but we were intentionally out there looking for someone who could really own the technical side of the business because we knew that was a big skill gap that we had, right? So fill that skill gap, feed that funnel, you know, and then, and then, you know, talking about seeing the funnel, talk to investors, you know, that's one of the things I've learned the hard way over my career is that there's no silver bullet when it comes to investment and fundraising. You've just got to build a network. You've got to play the numbers game. It's a relationships game. So we spent over the course of two years, a lot of time just supporting investors, just breaking seals, right? Having initial meetings, getting them on a monthly company update list, keeping them informed, creating kind of a, you know, a trajectory that they could see towards us starting this thing full time. And so once we had done a bunch of customer discovery and validated the concept, once we had found the technical talent and built this prototype and started to, you know, build this network of investors, Logan and I felt like, you know, check, check, check. Like we were ready to go ahead and start the company. We kicked off a pre-seed round of $750,000 in Q4 2019. You know, we were able to successfully, you know, raise that round, including 100K from Techstars because we got into Techstars that very same quarter, you know, and then January 1 of 2020, cut off every, everything else. We went full-time on, on Forecaster, me, Logan, Jonathan, and Stephen Ams, and we went straight into Techstars that same month we started the company. And then, you know, rest is history, as they say, we've been almost around for four years now talk more about that journey too, but that's how we kind of, that, those, that, that's how we approached that early incubation period, the kind of checkpoints, the hurdles we wanted to cross to ultimately kind of take the leap of faith, you know, and go full time. Awesome. Thank you so much for walking through that process. Uh, super applicable um, and actionable for so many founders and, and people thinking of starting a company. That's, that's straight up gold right there. Why don't we just get the obvious question out the way? Why do startups need financial modeling? Why is it important for a, uh, an early stage startup? Yeah, great question, man. Honestly, it's a great question because I tell everybody when I talk to founders about this, I'm like, look, like I don't need to tell any founder, right? That there's just not enough hours in the day. There's so much you got to do. There's so many competing priorities. There's not enough hours in the day. You got to be really selective about what you in fact do. So why spend any time on financial modeling, right? Like why, why take some of your valuable time and do that? In my opinion, it is a it is a wonderful framework to help you meet your three greatest objectives as a founder, which for me are hitting growth targets, not running out of money, and raising capital. Like as a venture back startup, as a high growth startup, I've got to hit my growth. I cannot run out of cash, and I've got to raise money. I think a financial model is a dead hit on all three of those. Hitting growth targets and not running out of cash—that is a future finance game. You know, like you are setting goals for your financials into the future model has got to be the way you do that in the smartest way possible. And that should tell you about when you run out of money, what do you need to do to avoid running out of money? Do you got to cut costs? Do you got to drive revenue? Do you got to raise money? What decisions that you have to make as a founder to not <laughs> run out of money? You know, those two things, I, I don't know of another way to really, really manage those two priorities outside of, of using a financial model, you know, it's, and, and then raising capital. I think, um, you know, finance, Finance is a language, right? There's a language to finance and investors are large part finance people. So they tend to be convinced by numerical narratives. And I tell founders that your financial model should tell the same story that your pitch deck does. It's you're telling a numerical narrative. You're telling the story of how you get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and how big that pot of gold is. So I have found it. It's very, it's very useful in a fundraising environment to convince investors to write a check. Um, so that, that's, a, that's what we think. I think like if you build a great financial model for your company, it should help you raise capital. It should help you set and, and achieve your growth targets and then ultimately make sure that you don't run out of cash because you are you know, aware of your cash flow positions. Yep. 
All amazing points. And when do you start, like how early do you actually start to pay attention to this and, and start focusing on the financial aspect? Like with, with Fantasy Hub and Forecaster, was it on day one you started to, to build out these these models and, and think about it and how we're spending our money? Or, or when do you actually, like when should a founder start to take this thing seriously? Yeah, it's a it's another really good question. And so the answer is, it's definitely a day one thing. You should be thinking about it day one and start with it. But it should be very simple at the beginning. Like you do, there's a lot of unknowns at the beginning, and modeling becomes more and more valuable over time as those unknowns become knowns. And so because your because your forecast becomes more accurate. So early on, it's very important that founders put a little bit of effort into it and build a simple what we call an MVP financial model because you want to have that directional level insight into the validity of the business model, into the growth targets, into the how much cash you need to raise in a pre-seed to achieve milestones that will unlock seed capital, telling that story, all those types of things. But, but you don't want a bunch of false precision. So don't over-engineer it. Keep it simple. Think about it like you think about your product. When you think about taking a product to market, you have to build an MVP at the beginning. What is that MVP? It's a summary of your assumptions about what the market wants. You build it. You push it into the market. The market tells you what, what it wants. And you adjust that MVP through to product market fit, right? Like modeling is the same thing. Build an MVP financial model that describes the core concept of your business. Push the business into the market. The market tells you how the business will perform. Adjust and pivot the model and expand the model, right? Until you achieve kind of model market fit, right? Until, until your model is representative of the business in a more stable way. And that way uh, your forecast will become more accurate. So that's how we coach founders on it. It's like start small, start simple. And then as you build the business, build the model and build the muscle. You know, that's because that's the other thing. A lot of founders lack that kind of financial hygiene muscle, right? And so we need to build that as well early on, you know, so that we are appropriately formed, you know, for the later stages of the, of the company's journey. Yeah, these th this is a really good way of framing it. Uh, you know, really like how you laid that all out, because like you said, there's only so much uh, hours in a day uh, and for founders that are wearing so many hats, you know, they're focused on the tech, the product, the sales operations. This just seems like, like a nuisance sometimes. to a lot of founders like, Oh, I don't want to work. I don't want to worry about that. Like that's, that's not, that's not value add. That's not mission critical, but the way you frame it of how this new, this numerical story is part of your overall story as a company. Um, and, and if you have this, if you have this thing down pat and, and have a strong, logical, coherent story, it's going to help you out in so many different ways with the business and being able to fundraise and grow and, and manage your spending and all of that. 100%, 100%. Awesome. Uh, well, let's fast forward a bit to today. You know, so interesting hearing, you know, kind of the buildup, all the lessons learned. So, you know, January 2020, you raised that you know, pre-seed and that's really when you guys started going, you know, all in on Forecaster. Um, it's been almost four years now. And in August, uh, just a couple months ago, you raised your seed round, four and a half million dollar seed round. Huge congratulations on that testament to what you've been able to accomplish, especially, you know, right now. It's just, this is just a, a statistical fact in seed funding and, and venture funding overall is down. Um, and especially in the early stages, it's more difficult now. So that's just a testament to how successful you guys have been and the traction that you're having relative to the market. Um, talk a little bit about that round raising it. I'm sure, like I said, with everything going on, it, it may have been a bit challenging. So maybe you can talk about the things you learned in that process and, and, uh, and then how, just how, how you guys have been successful, your traction and what your future 
plans are now that you have that fresh capital in the bank account? Yeah, yeah, I would love to love to talk about that because it's been a heck of a journey. Um, you know, so like you said, yeah, we raised four and a half a million a little bit earlier this year, and and it took me about seven months to get that round done. So that's the first thing I'd like to say for all the founders listening is rounds are taking a long time. I mean, right now those early stage rounds, like Arden said, it's a hard, it's a difficult market. It's a, it's kind of a squishy market. You know, we started uh, we started the year at 1.2 million in annual recurring revenue. We're up around 2.2 million now. We're on track to more than double this year. So we've got, you know, I mean, pretty solid growth metrics, solid retention metrics, solid unit economics. I, I fancy myself someone who's pretty good at fundraising. You know, I've got a large network. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a finance salesperson. I can talk the talk. But it still, it took me a full seven months. I pitched 200 investors to get three yeses. It was a one and a half percent conversion rate even with good metrics, right? Like it was a hard fought round, you know, is, is, is kind of the message I'm trying to convey here. It was not easy to get done. And I, and I am very glad that we were able to get it done. I think to your point, it is a testament to the strengths and the merits of the company, as well as, you know, uh, the, the investors on the cap table. We had a lot of current investors come to bite, you know, on that about two and a half million of the new, or sorry, excuse me, 2 million of the new capital was from current investors. The other two or two and a half was from 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 new. So, you know, um, that 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 uh, tells us a lot as well. One of the things I tell founders is, you know, informed investors are happy investors and happy investors write checks, which is just to say, take care of your investors, take care of who is already on the cap table. If you keep them informed, if you give them their, you know, their their due, they'll come to bat for you in your hour of need, which is what happened with us. So, so that's one big kind of, you know, takeaway for me. The other is, you got to play that numbers game. I mean, think about a guy like me who I think, you know, can pitch a company pretty well, 200, 200, you know, 200 targets, three yeses, a one and a half percent conversion rate. That's the worst conversion rate I've ever had in my career, which I think is a sign of the times. And if I didn't have those 200 leads, I might not have got the the, the deal done. A lot of founders start rounds with, with not enough top of funnel. You, you got to be thinking about getting the at-bats and, and, and having that, running it like a sales funnel, you know, and thinking about, conversion and kind of backing into the amount of found, the amount of investors that you got to talk to. So, you know, that was it. That was big for me. And then, you know, the third thing I'd just like to say on the, on the topic is, you know, I'm very blessed to have a co-founder like Logan, who's extremely capable and can run the whole business in my absence. And, and largely he did for the first two quarters of this year. I, I think that we both agree that fundraising is a full-time job and, and you've got to commit yourself to it completely if you want to get it done. So, uh, for the first two quarters of this year, I I was barely a, a member of the of the internal team. You know what I mean? Like I checked in on Slack from time to time. I I engaged here and there where needed, but I let Logan run the business. I left it in his capable hands, and I focused almost all of my time on raising that round. And and it took every ounce of that effort to get it done. So you know, I think that's uh I think that's the moral of the story. Is if you're looking to raise money as a founder right now, you've got to have the at bats and get that top of funnel. You've got to fully commit yourself you know, to, to, to the process, you know, and if you have current investors lean, lean on them to participate as well. That's a great signal to new investors. You know, it's, every, it's what every new investor wanna, wants to see, you know, those current investors are investing in the company. So, so yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of learnings there, um, but, but really glad that we were able to get that done and it does propel us forward. I mean, we're, we're going to have the, our opportunity to really take a crack at this thing now, you know, north of 2 million in revenue, looking to get to, to six by the end of next year. And, uh, and we've got the capital to to do that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and another, all great lessons. And an, another one just to further emphasize is the importance of having a strong co-founder. Cause like you said, like 
six months, you weren't even involved in the internal business because of how much of a full-time commitment fundraising is. So that's why it's so important to have a strong co-founder. Um, so you guys can, uh, you know, split up the duties, divide and conquer. Hey, I'll handle that fundraising stuff. You make sure that, you know, the, the ship is running smoothly. Really good points. Um, let's with this, you know, last few minutes, last couple of minutes, let's talk about the future here. You uh, you mentioned some of the growth metrics and, and you know, what you guys are projected to do. How are you planning on attacking that and, and growing beyond that? Is it uh, you see foresee some product expansion, sales expansion, trying to get into new markets, new geographies, uh, you know, increase headcount? Where's your head at in terms of growth and strategy? Yeah, great question. And actually, uh, a good timing too, because not too long ago, we, we um, you know, once kind of as we were closing that round, you know, we wanted to memorialize some of this stuff and do a strategic company roadmap, which we put together. And it all starts with the vision. You know, the vision of our company is to be the default operating system for FPNA in the private market. So, like that FPNA business function, which is that financial modeling, financial planning, financial analysis business function. We want to be the operating system for that. We want to supercharge all that. We want to replace Excel as that operating system, you know, in a SaaS plus human way. And that's, and that's how we do it. So, you know, uh, to your question about product, there's a lot of product expansion that we need to do around data integrations, around analytics, around reporting, around collaboration. So those are our four main pillars that we're focused on, on the product perspective to like take this great financial modeling software and round it out into an FP&A operating system. You know, um, our number one objective is to live by our cultural values. That's something that I'd like to say is that we're a culture first organization. We believe that that kind of culture is a huge kind of strategic element to the company. And so that's first and foremost for us is like if, if, if we don't live by our values, if we don't uphold our, those values, we're nothing. So that's number one. You know, number two is reach six million in annual recurring revenue by the end of, of 2024. And that comes from the forecast, as you might imagine, right? It's like we get in the forecast, we forecast, hey, customer acquisition by channel. What does price look like? What's retention look like? Where are we going to get? So a lot of that is doubling down on channel partnerships that have worked extremely well for us from a customer acquisition standpoint. So a lot of doubling down on what we've done you know, before there. And that's the benefit of getting a company from zero to one is you start to learn what works and you can just double down on it. You know, uh, number three is to become profitable. We want to become a profitable company long term. We'd like to have optionality as far as raising future capital. So if we can double, triple revenue and get to profitability, puts us in a great spot for raising that next round from a position of strength. You know, and then fourth is, you know, unlocking exponential growth opportunities. So we have kind of an 80-20 rule of, hey, we've learned a lot. So let's focus 80% of our time on doubling and tripling down on what works because we know that's going to be a low risk path to scale. But, but also we want to be poking and prodding and saying, what's going to unlock a exponential growth? What's going to unlock product-led growth for us? How can we make it really easy for investors to view financial models and, and get a, you know, a flywheel going there? How could we take our data, anonymize it, and, and surface it to customers as anonymous peer-to-peer -peer benchmarks on how they're doing on churn, on how they're doing on growth, on how they're doing on you know headcount, stuff like that. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there we can do to just try to, you know, phase shift the company up, but we don't want to get too distracted by it. So that's why, you know, we kind of have to like, you know, um, put most of our focus towards what we know works and a little bit of focus towards that stuff that could unlock a lot of growth for the company long-term. Yeah. Yeah. That would be huge. Uh, definitely a lot of really exciting strategies, growth prospects, very sound strategy. Um, 
I'm excited to see. I'm really excited to see how it's all going to turn out. Steven, uh, before we wrap up, anything you want to leave our audience with or shout out? Yeah, uh, well, I'll just say for all the founders listening, uh, thank you so much for for giving us this time. I hope it was useful uh, and just keep fighting the good fight. You know, as someone who's been an entrepreneur for 10 years, uh, it's hard. It can be lonely, you know, and, uh, and it's a slog. So just just keep fighting, keep building what you're building. And, uh, you know, if you ever find yourself in need of anything related to finance, it, it really in, in any way, even at forecaster.co, you can always reach out to me. It takes a village. So um and also just Arjun, I really appreciate this opportunity to be on this on this podcast with you. Uh, this was a ton of fun, so thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Meet the Entrepreneur. Be sure to follow Startup Society to stay on top of the most exciting startups in the country striving to keep the American dream alive. Until next time, take care.